Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, Ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now... Taz and Paula. Well, good morning, everyone. Our guest today, Athena Demetrios, is author of The Seasoning of a Soul, which shares her incredible spiritual journey. In a 20-year segment of her life, she has been a professional medium and a trance channel for Dr. James Martin Peoples. He lived for 100 years, 1822 to 1922, and we can't wait to hear about some of the messages uh, he has given through Athena. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Now Athena says she walks between the worlds and loves it. She sees spirits as if they were in the physical realm, and she talks to them as friends in as friends. And in fact, she encounters aliens and has found them of great fascination and not sources of fear. She is a telepath, a clairvoyant, a medium and channel, a voice for others who dwell in states of consciousness other than our own. She sees auras of plants and trees, and at times those who are guardians of them. And she has embraced any philosophy in life. Um, it would be to believe is to see. So if you pull on the thread, she says, you can see where it leads. Whoa, what an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> For 30 years, she has been a student of the IM teachings of St. Germain and other ascended masters. She now makes her home in Northern California and travels frequently, facilitating workshops in higher consciousness. Well, Athena, you have such an incredible story, and we welcome you to our show. Oops. Athena? Let me see. Oh, there you are. You somehow got turned off. Yeah, I'm here. So so welcome. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Your uh, your new book, The Seizing of a Soul, is actually your life story, your life journey, and it's just so incredible. And it starts out from your childhood, which was um, not a very good childhood at all. And your father well, was in and out of your life. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, well, to say it was challenging would uh, to be an understatement. I was born, and just to give you an a overview here, 
even before I go into that, what I would like to say is that everything that I've experienced in my life, which has been highly unusual um, for sure, has been my path back to God. As a child, I was born, literally born, knowing that I wanted to connect to something bigger, uh, that I felt part of something greater, but I did not know how to get back home. And that was probably the strongest feeling that I had. I remember my first memory would be standing outside and looking at the stars at night and feeling such a pull in my heart. And those stars looked like they were millions and millions of miles away. I felt completely separated. And I just did not know how to get back there, and I wanted to go back home. So looking at the stars was, I guess for lack of a better term, it was uh, a feeling of very deep homesickness for me. And I felt like the birth, uh, truly, um, as a young child, was a, a form of punishment. Uh, it was just a feeling that I had. And I was born into a very dysfunctional, alcoholic environment. My uh, parents had uh, great wealth at one time. My father had inherited great wealth. And he was a compulsive gambler and, you know, also an alcoholic. And he came over from Greece and he was uh, he was barely able to even write his own name and so he he was a restaurant Greek and, again, had inherited uh, a lot of money. My mother remembers dancing with Aristotle or Onassis when she was pregnant with me. And he, he gambled away uh, the money, and, of course, he was taken advantage of because he was not, you know, he truly wasn't uh, literate, not really in even uh, being able to speak uh, with good English. And the alcohol and the poverty just continued to spiral everything downward. I was born on the tail end of them losing all of that money. And my mother was, uh, was a, she was a, truly a, a very compassionate uh, woman, um, very uh, connected to, and this I learned, you know, certainly later, connected to uh ufology, uh, phenomena that always uh, truly sparked her interest in life. Of course, that would unfold uh, down the road for me. I have, uh, there was seven, I'm one of seven children, and so I was born in the middle. And when my father left, and we never knew where he would go or when he would return, and I always kind of feel like it was the uh, his lack of, uh, or his pride in the bill collectors that somewhat drove him away. And my mother's uh, boyfriend uh, moved into the house and uh, it truly became, uh, you know, like a border. He lived in the root cellar, I would say like this troll. And so over a period of year, a year, I was uh, repeatedly raped, and they were very violent. I, this was um, from the age of between six and seven. And, of course, to say that it, uh, it, it had certainly an effect on my life, I think uh, certainly when you're, you're children, you know, you do what you can to cope. And 
so I really had no memory at all as I uh, moved into my teenage years. One memory uh, that I held very, very clear, but it was kind of like if somebody walked up and turned a television program to snow, it would turn to snow, and then there was absolutely no memory. But there were certainly feelings that I carried within uh, my body and had knee-jerk reactions certainly to certain things. Suffice it to say, it was a series, of course, of, uh, you know, dysfunctional uh, relationships. And, you know, to, you know, to top that off, I, I really was viewing the world really more so as a, a threat uh, because of my experiences, my earlier experiences that I had not confronted in any manner that healing would come later on uh, down the road. And, and you didn't so even remember I, it, right? Well, I did remember it fully. I, you know, yes, I, I did. I did go into a... Uh, oh, I, I went very, very deeply uh, and consciously working with a wonderful uh, therapist uh, who actually used me for a case for his PhD and used the, the hypnosis because it was so blocked we had to go that deep. But it was a very I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that you didn't really remember too much until you until you started doing that work. Well, I didn't re- No, I didn't remember. I had I had a memory, one memory. And you know, I remember him getting me out of the bedroom and and uh, uh you know, him pushing me back and uh, that was clear as a bell, clear as a bell. But I did always have dreams of uh, going down into a basement and trying to rescue this little girl out of the basement. But I was always blocked by two dark figures at the top of the stairs. And my mother, uh, because she was very steeped in her alcoholism uh, at that time, and I certainly didn't say I, I didn't say anything to my older sister. Finally, I just said he was doing bad things to me, and then she confronted mother, but my mother would go into a state of denial, as so many mothers do, and I think it was probably because it was uh, would have been so difficult for her to have to look and address at all of the issues which were coloring the whole uh, period of time. So suffice it to say, up until the point when I was uh, 30 years, you know, 30 years old, you know, certainly my relationships were very dysfunctional. I did not know how to create any kind of uh, intimacy, became a workaholic in the corporate world, and also had a child at the age of 17. You know, gave birth, uh, my first love, and we never did get married back in the 60s. That was a complete taboo, but, you know, I, I kept her and, and uh, was a baby raising a baby. So suffice it to say, when I uh, hit about 30 or 32, that's when I called getting hit with a cosmic hammer uh, took place. And I had always been uh, sensitive, in a sense, even with some phenomena that I didn't understand. I, you know, saw my father the night that we buried him when I was 19. And I do see spirit very, very physically. It would be like if somebody was watching uh, the movie Ghost and how Patrick Swayze looked, I see them like that. And there's kind of always this uh, electrical 
uh, feeling that moves through my body prior. I call it I call it the doorbell ringing. And so I had a couple of when, experiences. Pardon? When was the first time that you saw people on the other side? I mean, how old were you? Well, that was the very first time that was the night that we had buried, or the day that we had buried my father. And I went, you know, I went to bed, and and uh, I had always kept the hallway doorway open uh, that would allow the light from the bathroom to flood into the bedroom, so I could, so that it was still dim enough, but light enough, so I could get up and and get my daughter a bottle. And I know that, uh, you know, that night when I went to bed, I was thinking that death was a nothing and life was nothing, and there was nothing to it. And because of course being deeply depressed and melancholy. And I remember going, you know, going to sleep that night and then pulling my, uh, pulling the covers back, throwing my feet on the side of the bed because my daughter was crying for a bottle and I put my head up and my I saw my father standing in the doorway. And he was, again, he was, uh, I'm not talking a wispy apparition because that's not how I see them, but he, again, he was as a, all of looking as Patrick Swayze and Ghost, but of light. And he was looking around very slowly, and it just scared me to death. My God, I just pulled the covers over my head and then pulled them back down and peeked out again, and he was still there. And I did it again, pulled the covers over my head, peeked down, and he was still there. And that began to shift something because I thought, you know, there has to be something. If I saw him, there has to be something. Uh, suffice it to say, he he appeared to my mother that night and spoke to her, and we didn't discuss it until a year later. But she did tell me what you know he had said to her. But he had come that night because she had been crying very very hard that day, and I I remember the dog kind of shaking and cowering, and sometimes they do that, you know, as well as some raps on the window, and I didn't understand anything uh, like that. So that was the first time. After my, what I call my spiritual awakening, I was 32 years old, everything in my life changed dramatically and drastically. And at that point, I kind of took off, not kind of, I took off like a rocket ship, practically. And I had, uh, there were three events that literally brought me to my knees. And those events were, without going into them specifically, but I do go into them, of course, very deeply in the book. But I remember getting on my knees and uh, just feeling that life hurt this bad. If it hurt this bad, then the cause had to lie within me. And that was a defining moment. They say we all have a defining moment in life, and that certainly was mine. And as a result, I had no idea. You're starting to cut out a little bit. Okay. Um, as a result. And... Uh, that was the defining moment, of course. And then after that, uh, that was a spiritual awakening. I became uh, very, very aware of the Ascended Masters uh, at that point. And be- okay, we're back. We are back. Are you there? Yes, yes, I'm here. Technology. Yeah, this is, really technology. A, this is, a, this is a, oh. a much clearer connection. Good. Sorry about that. So, anyway, um where we we were you were going through uh hypnosis and um and working on yourself because of 
what had happened to you in your childhood. Okay, I can I can pick it up uh, from there. Uh, the rapes, which again, you know, they were very violent and happened over a dozen times, and uh, he was. Uh, he was he would hold a butcher knife against my throat and and uh, tie me up basically bind me so they were very very uh violent i knew however as my journey progressed that i needed to heal i wanted to heal and that was so important for me and so i began to seek out a therapist because i was willing to go in and do the work and i had also talked to Dr. Peebles uh, through his original medium about that, and he was saying it's you know it's timely. Your teachers and high or and I agree, you know that it's timely that you're strong enough to confront this. I had uh, sought out a therapist uh, when I was in my twenties, and she always tried to get me to go down some stairs, but I would not do that. I just I I felt like a part of me was locked down there, but I knew on some level, which was very interesting, I wasn't strong enough to deal with it. After some very deep prayer and <clears throat> interviewing a therapist, because I wasn't willing to turn this over to just anybody, because I don't feel that, I think it's a, a highly specialized field, and one really needs to do their homework when uh, finding the appropriate therapist. And I knew instantly, there's something in my gut told me this is the person. And I also, something told me at that time to record those sessions, because we were not able to really progress uh, with hypnotherapy or um, regular therapy in the beginning, I I had a feeling we would have to use something like uh, hypnosis. And when he put me under, I went, very, very deep, there's a word for it, not able to uh, remember exactly what it is, but it means going very, very uh, deep, almost into the deepest state possible. And that's when we began to unravel and uncover. So I worked with um, Dr. Slavin probably over a period of um, a year, and it was through those memories that basically... I wanted to uh, relive to a certain extent so that I could move through it. I wanted to be able to move through it. I felt if I'm here now, I've survived it, but I want to go back and I want to heal the belief systems that I created around that. And so that's the kind of work that we did, and I'm very, very uh, grateful that we did. I have uh, tremendous empathy for uh, women and men that go through any kind of experience like that. And I think it takes a lot of courage for someone to make that decision to want to go back and uh, to do the work. It doesn't happen overnight. And I guess if I had a message that I would like to share with anyone is it's a process. Put that up. It is a process. And you'll get from point A to point Z as you allow yourself to move through it's kind of like the thunder and the lightning and, and uh, everything that comes up with it, you know, because I certainly tapped into levels of rage and, and uh, great depths of uh, rage and hurt and uh, betrayal. And all of those were just like the skin on an onion. And they would all come forward in their own time 
to be worked with uh, did not happen overnight. But I am so grateful, good Lord, that I, I did the work. So Well, in the meantime, you were uh, holding down um, a job. I mean, you were in Hollywood and a makeup uh-huh. artist, and, and you were also working in prisons. I mean, helping the well, prisoners. there there was a, there was yes, there was a, a time when I felt this real desire to do that. Of course, uh, you know, not fully understanding why sometimes I think we feel things on such a you know a deep level uh, that we don't understand where that desire is coming from. I also know that it was also one of the ways, and this is something that Dr. Peebles made me very aware of, was that keeping my attention on other people's pain, because he Mm -hmm. said pain was a trigger for me, you know, and if keeping my attention on their pain was a very clever technique of keeping my attention off of my own pain. So there's great wisdom. I see people doing that all the time. Yeah, I see people doing that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And once I became aware of that, and it, it wasn't that I didn't feel, you know, a great uh, empathy. I mean, who can't relate on some level on, on being imprisoned? We're all imprisoned by our own judgments and, and uh, thoughts and feelings, you know. It's like you said, they're more blatant with it, perhaps. So, you know, working with that, that went on for, you know, probably about a period of um Oh, maybe eight, nine months. And then I started realizing that it wasn't healthy for me to do that because it was it was a way that I felt like I was um, having worth, that I was valuable. And because of that, I pulled back and I said, no, you know, I, I can't do that until I really heal myself more. And that was uh, quite an insight, you know. So that was also, that, that definitely dovetailed. And I also found out, you know, through Dr. Peoples later on down the road, that it also was part of a rebalancing of lifetimes where I had, you know, had imprisoned many. So, you know, sometimes you see something from the outside that when we look at some life experiences that somebody's going through, we don't always have the full story of what brought them to that point or the unfolding of their uh, prior lives you know, that really shaped the events that, you know, they're experiencing in this life. I think most of the time we barely see that. So, How did you become um, the um, medium and trans channel for uh, Dr. Peoples? Well, it was in, I think it was around 1982, actually, and... Somebody had said to me, now remember, now I had really not read up up until uh, 30 years old, and I had not read any spiritual books, and then, of course, I started studying the I Am Discourses by St. Germain, which I still do. And But other than that, you know, that, that whole world was uh, somewhat new. And one evening, someone was listening to the radio, and they said, you got to hear this guy. He's coming through a man named Thomas Jacobson. And this was on a nationally syndicated program called KABC Talk Radio. And, you know, callers would call in, and they'd talk to Dr. Peoples, and I just fell in love with him. I loved his message. I loved his wit. I loved his wisdom. And I loved, you know, how he was able to access information 
you know, for, for people. And I was thinking to myself, but, well, of course, you know, I also felt completely electrified when I heard his voice. It was like on some level I felt like I knew this guy. And so the next day I was working uh, on a commercial, actually, and there was I was doing the makeup on an actor, and he said, and we had this wonderful metaphysical conversation, and he said to me, he said, you know, I just had the most incredible reading with this character named Dr. Peebles. So now you can imagine, um, to my excitement. And so I contacted his medium at the time and, you know, wanted to have a uh, session with him. And he said, well, I'm doing a group up at my house. Come on up, and then you can have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Peoples. And so at that point in time, and I did, you know, I did go up there and, uh, you know, I was sitting in the group and my when it came turn for my question, I, you know, I said, hi, Dr. Peoples, my name is Athena and I'm feeling the desire to write. And he interrupted me and, and he said, this is a channeling state, you know, which has already begun. And he said, we encourage you to write about your own growth in life personally. And he said, that'll prepare you for the channeling you'll be doing towards the end of the decade after confrontation of change, which definitely happened, you know, down, down 1989. And, you know, he came through, and but I did not know how to develop it, you know, because it, it, chan, channeling is an art form, and it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of repetition, and it definitely is an art form. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to study with a good uh, teacher, and so I was very, very fortunate to find uh, Sean Randall, who is in Los Angeles, who uh, channels a wonderful consciousness named Tora, and Tora actually came through Sean and taught us the art of channeling, and so that was wonderful. I did that for years and years and years and years because I feel as if we're always a student in life, and things always grow and expand and change and evolve. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, but but he's been a, a tremendous guide in my life and for many does, other people. Uh, is Dr. Peoples able to go through more than one channel, or does he just work with one channel? Oh, no, no, he, no, no, no. He, he goes through several channels, um, through several different uh, channels, and, uh, you know, probably some over in uh, Europe. There's other ones here in the United States that many I, I'm not even aware of. So he does definitely uh, go through other uh, channels, and it's always, you know, it's what part of uh, himself that he can effectively bring through uh, the channel. Because when you're in the process of uh, channeling, you know, they they also it's it's not of their desire to overwhelm the channel, and uh, you know, it's not that they come in. That's not my understanding of what happens at all. It's not that they come in, take over, or possess, but it's you know it's really one where you uh, learn to invite them in, and that you know that happens through uh, certain uh, prayers and uh, you know some of the ways that uh, one one is taught. And uh, you know I cannot I cannot stress uh, the integrity with this kind of work enough. I'm very 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 passionate about the integrity with uh, this kind of work and uh, you know working with people in a way that uh, is uplifting for them you know helping them but he's you know he seems to work uh, pretty detailed you know, especially I think through personal growth issues and things like that you know and that's the way he comes through me a lot 
Well, you found out you had a lifetime with him. I did, and that was absolutely fascinating. That was fascinating. Well, you know, to somewhat just kind of like follow the bouncing ball here, as a teenager, of course, you know, I saw my first spirit, which was my father, you know, and if there was an era that I could dress, it would be in the turn of the century. You know, I always loved those high-neck dresses and just felt very connected uh, to those, the cameos and, you know, the hats and and I also have been uh, very, very drawn to the New England states. And although I had never visited the New England states at that time, I was very drawn to them. And, you know, public speaking, you know, has always been uh, somewhat uh, easy for me. You know, once you get up there and you just start speaking and you get comfortable, that's easy. And the other part of uh, the the equation, which was kind of fascinating, was that I had given uh, consideration of uh, going into the medical field at one point. And then when I started the process of channeling, you know, there was a time when I was, uh, you know, fearful of uh, possession and, you know, that kind of thing. But that was simply a doorway with, um, you know, where I did not have the full understanding of what was really transpiring. So down, down the road, oh, it was in the early... Uh, 90s, there was a sequence of events that um, transpired. I remember asking Dr. Peoples, and I said, did I know you before? It was very funny. He's, uh, you know, he's got this little brogue, and he, he said, well, yeah. He said, I, uh, you know, we knew this was coming. And he said, I'll tell you this, I knew you well. He said, you were not in my peripheral vision. Um, I knew you very uh, well. I knew you intimately. Um, you were as a sister to me, I love you very much. Um, we worked on several projects together. Your name was Mary. You were a medium through and through, and that's all I'm going to tell you. He said, you'll be um, investigating this down the road. So I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I just let it go. And then I have a, a dear friend who um, wrote the book To Dance with Angels. It's an interview with Dr. Peoples. It's a wonderful book. Uh, her name is Linda Pendleton, To Dance with Angels. And so, you know, at uh, that point in time, I was maybe, I think probably um, maybe five or six more years had passed. And then I was telling Linda, I said, Linda, I said, I'd like to find out where old Mary is buried and go put some daisies on the old girl's grave. You know, she started laughing. And she's a wonderful researcher because of all the research she's done on Dr. Peebles. And so she said, check your email. And there was... Uh, as soon as I saw this name, it just, again, it was that electrical feeling. Mary Teresa Longley was born in Boston in 1853, and uh, she was born into a whole family of um, psychics, and she became a full trans medium at the age of 14. And her mother, uh, you know, denounced the... Baptist religion and became a spiritualist. Now, Dr. Peoples was um, historically known for his work in, uh, you know, as a spiritualist. And Mary Longley became a treasurer, I think it was treasurer, or secretary of the Spiritualist Association back in Lilydale. And, you know, you can find their names all over the place. Well, anyway, there was a book that was available, you know, at that time. And it was... Um, I think it was called, uh, you know, the 
Spirit World by Mary Longley, and it had her complete bio in there. And so it goes into great detail. And then, of course, wouldn't you know, at the very end of the book, there's a testimonial at the end of the book where Dr. Peebles is giving a testimonial about uh, Mary Longley's husband, who was a composer at that time. Also, around that time, um, someone gave me a dress, a script supervisor that I worked with, said, I don't know why, but I think you're supposed to have this. And it's a turn-of-the-century dress that fits me like a glove. So, you know, there's, there's you know, a sequence of events, and, and I call her shy, she and I. And Mary, um, you know, authored several books. And I, I'm not sure why all of it fell in my lap um, as it did, and I'm not overly fascinated uh, with it. But it certainly explains, oh, and uh, she was a physician, by the way, and she also cured obsession and possession and, uh, you know, gave uh, readings. And so you you just find that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, people that are very drawn to a specific uh, profession in this life, you know, chances are it's very, very close to what they did before. Yeah, so, um, but out of all of that, what fascinates me the most, is that I could have stood as a woman of 60 years old and watched my father physically get off the boat from Greece, from Ellis Island, and said to him physically, because we were both alive in that that same time period, and said to him, in this century, you will be my father. Isn't that interesting? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, you have your book. The The title of the book is The Seizing of a Soul. Mm-hmm. And what what brought you forward to make that particular title? How did it come about? Well, actually, I'd been, you know, thinking about what I was going to uh, call it. And, you know, I'd been meditating one day, and uh, that actually dropped in you know, uh, the seasoning of the soul. And I went over and I, you know, picked up the, uh, or seasoning was the word that dropped in, and uh, uh, seasoning. And so when I went over and uh, looked in the dictionary, it was something like uh, to comprehend through trial and experience. And uh, um, I thought, and that was, one of the descriptions, and of course I knew that I was given that by spirit. It was not an easy book by any means uh, to write, and it was a long journey. I think it took me 28 years because I was so, you know, there were so many experiences that I felt great shame about, Um, and certainly that speaking about uh, the sexual, you know, abuse as a, a kid, now I'm able to speak from a point of great gratitude because of the healing, it doesn't mean at times when you're moving through that process that you don't feel great shame about certain things. And I think, you know, we all have that. And there's sometimes there's just shame that just downright sears the soul and feels like that. And so I felt like if I put all of this out there, you know, what are people going to think? And I think it's always a writer's block. You know, I think everyone can certainly relate to that. Well, what will people think? And, 
you know, once I was able to really look at the fact that if I didn't write the book, I knew I was going to be backing out of something because of fear. And I've really, throughout my life, there's been there have been times when even though, yeah, was I, you know, frightened to go back and do that kind of work? Yeah. But to be free in my soul meant more to me. And I just knew I've always innately known, even as a young teenager, that pain has an origin. Pain has an origin. And I always have wanted to go back, look at that again, and, uh, you know, revisit that. Now I don't think about things, um, you know, in the past. I am so filled with gratitude, even those experiences, because I was ultimately able to move uh, to forgiveness with that, and that was not an easy easy thing. But having uh, said that, just because my life has been colored, you know, with so many highly unusual experiences, I, I kind of feel like a cat that's lived nine lives, you know, in this one. Well, we were t- we were talking this morning, and you said that um, you're not a victim. You're no. a creator. And yes. Well, that's the hard that's the hard one to get to, and I know that um, it, it's very very difficult. It is not easy, but it's where the point of freedom comes. I know certainly having studied, uh, you know, the doctor uh, people's principles. You know, he always says, "Never in your eternal soul are you the victim. You're always a creator," and so. Getting to the point of owning it, because a lot of times if you don't own something, it's like you said, it's going to own you. And that's what feels so awful in life. Now, it doesn't mean that, good God, that there wasn't a period that I didn't want to stand on a mountaintop and scream, look what happened to me. And But for me, I also began to understand it was an absolute blockage that kept me from being present. And it was a blockage that um, didn't allow me to move forward uh, in a way that I could really begin to open myself uh, more fully and, and certainly to love, for one thing. Because it's hard if everything is colored through that prism. And when you experience that as a child, my biggest rage and I can tell you this right now, my biggest rage was at my mother because she didn't protect me. And that's what a parent's supposed to do, mm-hmm. yep. it, it's that they, they don't protect. And now I understand, you know, that uh, she was so steeped in her own, you know, her own pain and uh, uh, even denial with the situation and... But I was able to truly, truly, uh, you know, forgive her because it was time, and I wanted to, I truly wanted to to be free. So, it, but it makes a conscious decision, or it, it took me. I can't speak for other people, but I know it took me the conscious decision that said, if I let go of this, if I let go of the crutch of this child abuse, what can I have? to blame things on in my life that didn't work out. That was a huge insight. 
So it was a lot of people, it's hard for them to let go of that title as a victim. It's hard for them to let that go of that. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that Dr. Peebles has always shared, and I'll certainly share this, you know, if anyone is listening, it may be something that they might like to explore because I do, I've applied this in all of my experiences is what is the gem in it? What's the gem to extract? And it says, this is how has it served my soul? How has this helped me grow? How has it helped me grow as a soul? And just doing that really begins to transform some of that energy because it's, it's, um, it, it feels at times like you're just stuck. You know, I always said it was like trying to swim in a stagnating pond with blocks tied to my feet. But I think, you know, one has to, to uh, it doesn't come, as a, you know, you've got to be willing, I had to be willing to move into the discomfort of crossing that bridge. And I think that's the, you know, it's, sure, it can smart, sure, you're going to cry. You know, sure, you're you're going to not feel good for a couple of days, but you know what? A couple of days later, you're going to feel lighter. Your heart's going to feel lighter. You're going to feel more equilibrium. You're going to feel more balance. And, you know, life just starts looking different. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how I feel now. So. Well, there's one thing I wanted to hit before our, our interview has to come to a sudden halt. Yeah. Is <laughs> your, you, being, you were contacted. I mean, you were a con, um, contactee. Contactee. And, mm-hmm. and what? was kind of ironic about the story is your mother and your brother both loved UFOs. I mean, they studied it and they believed in it, and you are the actual one who was contacted. And you, you said you, when your mother passed away that she would probably stuck around if she had been able to be a part of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, her you know her deepest dream probably would have been uh, to go off to another planet, uh, you know... <laughs> In a ship, really. Um, well, she was always, and and I so wish my my mom was alive now, uh, because oh my goodness, the things that we would have in common. But I remember uh, taking her up to a little uh, church up uh, twelve miles from here, where they were doing a documentary on the Roswell case, where they actually showed a photograph. Now remember, this was the Roswell at that time was not even 20 years old, but I remember seeing a picture. You know those kind of little pictures that have the little white edges that we used to have back in the 60s where uh-huh. um, he held up a picture, put it into a project um, projector, and there were two farmers that were holding up an alien. And uh, I'll never forget that. And that was um, someone speaking on the Roswell case, and then it was also a documentary on the psychic surgeon from the Philippines, which I also had work on me. Um, Back to the fascination, I guess, with uh, aliens that she had when, and and that was always, any program or whatever, she would always listen to that on the radio and read the fake magazines. Now, when I was young, I do have one memory of going over to the coast with my sister and her friend. They were sitting in the front seat, and I was um, kind of hanging my head out of the car like a, a kid will do, and 
I must have been probably around eight, nine years old, and I remember looking up and seeing a huge craft hovering over our car in broad daylight. Broad daylight. It was just, you know, kind of like the color of an old um, pie tin, you know, that that gunmetal gray. And I remember uh, the car stopping, and I remember seeing my sister at the, the hood of the car, and she has no memory of that. And then, um, and that's all I re- had remembered. But then there was a period of uh, over a year where I had very intense nosebleeds after that, which I also found out as another sign of a contactee, but didn't uh, put you know two and two together. And then down the road uh, in my 30s was when a lot of it, 30s, 40s, when a lot of the contacts started to take off. Um, I would find myself looking out the window um, at night and seeing ships either in formation and feeling excited, very, very excited and fear at the same time. And then when actual contact uh, really happened was in, uh, uh, I think it was around 19... It was around 1989, maybe 1988, and I remember sitting, we were living uh, in uh, the desert at the the time, and I remember looking up at the stars at night and just saying, if any of you are out there and can hear my thoughts, I would love to communicate with you. But it was a feeling of very deep reverence, very deep reverence. And it was uh, shortly after, I think the following month, we were going up to Big Bear, for Christmas, and I was driving, and I remember that there were two, there were no clouds in the sky except these two clouds following the same time, or the same pace as the car, and uh, they were like UFO cutouts. You could have just stamped a UFO, and like they were hid uh, in there, and then once up, um, you know, at the cabin, I instantly got uh, tired and went to lay down uh, to take a nap, and I had the strangest sensation to this day. I've never felt it, but it felt like my body was being touched, and it was so electrical. It would be like I could feel almost like the molecules moving in the sheets. The next thing I knew, I was inside of a gray, round amphitheater. That's what it looked like to me, and I saw this form wasn't a complete form. It was form but formless at the same time, very intelligent, white light, looked about five feet tall. And I just heard, I am so-and-so from the star system of such-and-such. They both had started with an A, but I wasn't able to remember them at that time. And then this form came over to me, entered me, and I remember speaking on creation and fertilization. I woke up from that, and I laid in bed for about an hour and think, oh, my God, where was that that I went? Well, when I got back back to town after that, um, and there were some other events, and I do go into this a lot in the book, but I got back to town, I made an appointment with uh, Dr. Peebles, and in his opening statement to me, you know, he had said, because of your courage and uh, perseverance in life, uh, you've created a platform for other beings of wisdom to speak through you. And there's one known as Almach from the star system of Alpha Centauri. And no one knew this. I hadn't talked talked to anyone about this. But that was the A, you know, that I couldn't remember. And so he was, you know, I was uh, bringing him through initially uh, before Dr. Peoples kind of uh, booted his way in. So And, and he, Dr. Peoples said your vibration uh, after that experience had raised. increased. 
Yes. yes. Well, there was another event that happened. You know, I don't know how much time we have here, but he he said that that actually were the um, physical or the the vibration in my body was was uh, raised uh, up almost to seventy percent. That's what he had told me. And you know, it was just like a another jolt of um, electricity. And you know, I'm not sure. Perhaps. Who needs to know? It's kind of like I don't need to know. I've never studied about uh, UFOs. I don't have an interest in studying about them. I just don't. I just know they exist. I mean, I you know, I think you would have to be almost insane to look at the stars and the galaxies and the universes within universes within universes and think that we're the only form of life. I don't think so. You know, so that can be someone else's reality. It's not mine. But, um, you know, I don't... You know, I I just I just have always accepted it, kind of like breathing. That yeah, of course there's life out there. Yeah, and well, I think maybe maybe that's why I see spirit the way that I do, or see them physically as well. Yeah, so well, your book covers so many different <laughs> different things that happened in your life. I know. Uh, uh, you had um, psychic surgery. You had. Uh, Actually, rheumatoid arthritis, and then uh-huh. do you have still have that, or did it disappear? Well, yes. I mean, that's you know the RA. You know, I know that um, people told me years ago. He said, you know, that that, that you know it ran uh, ran um, parallel to my anger back then. And uh, but you know, I am not on. For me, can't say this for other people, but for me, I am. You know, I'm just not. Don't want to put all of that medication, you know, in my system. Um, but I, you know, I'm doing very well with it. And, you know, I work with that certainly through meditation and, you know, all of that. And, uh, you know, I've discovered, you know, sugar has a huge effect on it. And, you know, so I'm doing I'm doing uh, very well with that. But, yes, I did uh, uh, see the psychic surgeon uh, in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, I also think perhaps, because I did want him to work on my third eye, and that was one of the most fascinating experiences because I was also able to witness uh, him working on uh, someone else. And uh, and then when he worked on me, and it was very funny, I said, I'd like you to work on my third eye. And he, he says, ah, you want to see spirit. <laughs> and <laughs> which was funny. And so I do, you know, I, I do see spirit. I help them cross over many times. I'm led to where they're at, you know, and I never know when that's going to transpire or take place. But, you know, I will see them. And, you know, I don't, my mediumship doesn't, as a rule, just work like you see some mediums where they're just constantly giving messages to a large group. My mediumship seems to work if somebody... I will always get an electrical current, and then I will see the spirit standing next to the person. Um, I know that the Doheny Mansion, and I talk about this, that's an experience um, in the book, and I think that chapter is called, If You're Dead, Why Do I See You? Where, you know, there was um, someone very, very you know, famous in Los Angeles, and we were filming there one day, and... Uh, I remember getting that current and looking down at the end of the hall and I saw this spirit, you know, and he had lifted or turned, he kind of had his body halfway out of the room 
calling to me, and he said, please help me. And I looked around, and none of the crew were there, which was highly unusual. And so I went down there and and, uh, helped cross him over. But, you know, he had been stuck there for a long time. So, you know, I've seen one with the Civil War and crossed him over. So, you know, that's just another part of it. Well, your book covers all of this and more. I mean, it's an incredible <laughs> book. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I, you know, it's raw, and I don't elaborate. Um, and well, it, it is available. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said that's what Dr. People said it needed to be, is raw. So. Yes. He, he said you'll know the success if you write it and you're raw. And let it be raw. But I do not color, make anything more than what it was. It is exactly as it happened. Even though I had huge memory lapse as a, a child and was able to remember, I have a phenomenal memory with certain things and events, even the way somebody is, you know, dressed or what they're what they're wearing. It's very it's kind of like selective. You know, and uh so anyway, it's yes and it's um available on Amazon. You know, it's available in Kindle and then you know, and uh, also, you know, um, Amazon, and and uh, I think that's you know that's 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 where most people go to oh, to get it. The seasoning of the soul. And do you uh, share your uh, website so that people the can website? Hop on it. Sure, they can. Yes, they can get in touch with me through the website. It's I M I um, capital I capital A capital M I M within dot com. And uh, for the listening audience, we've been talking to Athena Dimitrios and her new book, The Seasoning of a Soul. And there is so much in it. It's a sure pleasure to be able to read it. And I could, when I was uh, reading it, I could see where it could help people and, uh, that might be going through the same thing. So well, thank you for uh, bringing this forward Oh, well, you know, bless your heart, uh, you know, both of you, and and, uh, for the wonderful work that you are doing. And, you know, I I appreciate the opportunity, and it's just wonderful to see, uh, you know, uh, so many people in humanity waking up. It's just, you know, it's uh, tremendous, and you are uh, certainly flooding the world with a lot of light with the work that you're doing. So thank you for that. Well, we would love to have you back. Okay. Well, I would, too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Bye-bye. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, Arne, did you want to make an announcement? Yes. Yes. Uh, You're you're listening to 91.5 FM, KKUP Cupertino, Embracing Mother Earth is the name of our program. I'm Taz. And I'm Paula. And our next uh, show is pre-taped, but it's a wonderful show. And remember, our guest does not necessarily represent the opinion of KKUP staff or management. Okay, we are ready. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, 
ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula. Our wonderful guest today is Michael Tellinger, author, scientist, explorer, has become a real-life Indiana Jones, making groundbreaking discoveries about ancient vanished civilizations at the southern tip of Africa. His continued efforts and analytical scientific approach has produced stunning new evidence that will force us to rethink our origins and rewrite our history books. You are now listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Before Michael Tellinger, there were only novel speculation about the origins of stone remains on the continent of Africa. But with Michael's dedication to discovering and tracking and revealing vanished civilizations, it's now possible to reach into the minds of our ancient forefathers to discover a purpose greater than what we might have expected. And certainly it's now well acknowledged that they they were further technologically advanced than the present day and far more astute than what we are taught to the less than accurate caveman mentality of our educational systems. And recently, Michael has shared the stage with international celebrities like Graham Hancock, David Wilcox, Bob Dean, Carrie Cassidy, Dr. Stephen Greer, Stanton Friedman, and many more. Is this Michael? It is. Oh, great. We just got through actually introducing you, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with you today. You have so much to share. Uh, I'm just well, curious on how... you're presently on tour. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I'm just curious on how you got involved in um, all of the research that you've been doing in South Africa. How did you get involved and find all these interesting facts out? It's an interesting question. Sometimes I wonder myself, you know, sometimes we are drawn into the areas of our lives um, because we have an interest in that field of research or study, and slowly but surely the things around us evolve and develop, and before you know, you, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and you're suddenly doing all this stuff, and you don't really understand how you got there yourself, just purely because of that's a path that I've chosen, and um, it's something that I um, started working on a long time ago, researching, writing about, and and here we are. Well, well it looks like thing. you've taken it. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, it looks well. like you've taken a step forward here, and um, you know. You say it kind of evolved. Was there any particular thing that that kind of went, oh, my goodness, I just can't not bring this forth for people? This is so exciting, and your heart just began to beat and pound and, 
and with excitement. What what was that moment, Michael, that just stepped you into that into that that arena? I think it was probably when uh, I met a guy by the name of Johan Heiner in two th- early 2007. When um, at that stage he'd been photographing and photographing the stone ruins of southern Africa for about 15 years from his aeroplane and helicopters uh, as part of his job as a firefighter in the forestry area. And uh, he was very fascinated by these weird stone circular structures that nobody seemed to know anything about and everybody was ignoring. And um, and then in in 2003, Johan discovered what has become known as Adam's Calendar, um, which is the title I gave it. And um, Johan um, came to one of my presentations on Slave Species of God, my book, that I'd written at that stage. And, uh, and he didn't even know I was a South African. He thought I was an American author. So he came to my presentation, and afterwards he said, can I show you some of these photographs I've been taking? And, um, you know, uh, I don't know what these things are, but uh, they scattered all over Southern Africa. So he showed me these photographs, and I just knew instinctively that it was uh, inextricably connected to the origins of humankind, the activity of the Anunnaki in southern Africa, um, the gold mining. Um, I knew that it was connected. I didn't know how, but uh, but that's where I really started the process of research. And um, a few months later, when uh, I took a flight with Johan, over the stone ruins, and he showed me this calendar that he's been measuring for five years at that stage that nobody was paying attention to. Um, I realized that this is something I was going to be doing for a long time and in, in, in years to come. How do you measure with a calendar? Um, how do you what, sorry? How do you measure with a calendar? I mean, what did you see? Was there something on the ground, or or what, what did you view? Well, the, the, this is what Johan found, uh, and he'd already been um, researching it for about five years by the time he met me. So he already figured out at that stage that the calendar, uh, which uh, which uh, is now called Adam's calendar, is aligned with the movement of the sun, with the equinoxes, the solstices. You can tell every day of the year by the shadow of the setting sun. Um, and uh, it's it's a, it's a phenomenal sight, you know. For the people that have seen my work, um, they'll know what I'm talking about. For those that haven't, um, you know, either come to one of my presentations or get get the book Adam's Calendar or Temples of the African Gods, or which has now been re-released under a new name called the African Temples of the Anunnaki and a slightly um, upgraded version of that book. And it shows you very clearly how this is a it's still a working calendar, um, the stone calendar. Um, but as most, if not all, of the ancient monolithic sites, the calendar aspect, just like in Stonehenge, is not the main feature. It's just a built-in um, feature. It's not the main reason why the site, site was constructed. That reason, the main reason why it was constructed, only became uh, evident uh, several years later when we started doing some more in-depth scientific measurements and electronic measurements of uh, the energy fields at these sites. Now, did the calendar um, help you estimate how old the uh, stone circles are? 
Um, yes, in some way it did, uh, because it's uh, it's got many many phenomenal features to it. Um, one of them, one of the features that it it's aligned with uh, the rise of Orion's belt um, and three stars. And I'm just amazed being in the United States. I look up at the sky at night and I don't see Orion's belt, and I feel quite lost because in South Africa we see Orion's belt every night, every day of the year. And it's uh, it's it's amazing. It's what I it's what I look at the sky for to see where Orion's belt is, and I know and I get my orientation from that. And it's just weird looking at the sky here in the north and not seeing Orion's belt. I feel lost, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, it's it's a main feature at Adam's calendar, and you can it, it's quite spectacular to see and sort of. Um, uh, like if you take shots um, over uh, several years on some of these star maps. Uh, these star uh, star map um, computer programs, and you see how the, the Orion's belt in the southern hemisphere um, lies flat on the horizon, and then it lifts up, and then it comes down again, and it lifts up over elongated periods of time, several thousand years. I think it, it goes in about thirteen thousand year cycles. So the Adam's calendar is aligned with the rise of Orion's belt, um, and uh, and and the dating on that was very interesting because. Uh, the, the first bit of dating that I got from two separate astronomers was about 75,000 years, and the other one was uh, 160,000 years. Um, but both of them would be incorrect because they didn't take into consideration some other important aspects of the calendar that um, we dis that we we discovered as well by measuring the actual um, alignment of the north, south, east, west axis. Um, the, the the cardinal points, um, and um, we discovered that the cardinal points of north, south, east, west are out by three and a quarter degrees in an anti-clockwise anti-clockwise position, which is just insane. It's unheard of. It's not possible to, for north south to move, because that's where the Earth's polar axis is, north south polar axis. And that shouldn't move. And yet, Adam's calendar clearly shows that when the site was built, north-south line was not where it is today. And that's a that's a huge discovery in uh, realizing that the Earth has undergone great um, giant uh, disturbances and and violent, um, um, I guess, um, geo physical disturbances that at some stage has shifted the north-south axis from where it is today. That could happen again. Exactly, yeah. And as far as I know, it's the only site, uh, I don't know of any other site, that you can actually now physically and scientifically show that the Earth's crust has either shifted, taking north-south line with it, or something else has happened, um, you know, indicating that that we've had such violent um, apocalyptic uh, events on planet Earth in the past. I don't know of any other site that actually has this encoded in it. Hmm. Yeah, wow. the stones remain. Yeah, that's 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 the amazing thing. The stones are still standing there. <laughs> well, I, I, do you I read see that any no images? Do, do you see any images that are carved in these stones? Um, that that are remaining in, in their in their structures. 
Um, we have several images that we found. Um, the one of the key ones is in, an, and some people say, well, they they don't really see it, but when you're there, you see it very clearly. What I call the Horus stone. Um, it's very, very definitely a, a stone that's carved into the shape of a bird. But the stuff is so old that uh, it's so badly eroded that one has to realize that um, we dealing with really ancient activities and uh, and ancient carvings and ancient structures that have eroded and deteriorated so badly that they don't always look as neat and tidy as we'd like them to. And um, the, the Horus Stone is very clearly um, in line with the rise of the sun, just like Horus marks the rise of the sun in Egypt. And if you lift the Horus Stone up, um, it looks at, um, it would look if it was standing upright the way it fell. Um, it would be looking at the three um, stones that mark the rise of Orion's belt. And so, just like you have in Egypt, uh, Horus uh, indicating the rise of Orion and Osiris associated with Orion. So, you've got the same. Uh, symbology and the same mythology that comes through at Adam's calendar as you have right on the opposite side of Africa in the north in Egypt at the Great Pyramid of Giza. And you said there's also a sphinx? There's also a sphinx, uh, a small carved sphinx out of dolerite stone. It's probably about it's probably about two meters long, between one and a half and two meters long. Um, and um, it's clearly a carved stone, but once again, it's very old, and, um, and that sort of connects uh, the, the the Giza Plateau with its giant sphinx through Great Zimbabwe, where there's a, a phenomenal story of two golden sphinxes that have gone missing in the early days of excavation, and then the sphinx at Adam's calendar. So you've got them all connected along the the Nilotic Meridian, which also happens to be the line of 31 degrees east, which also happens to be the line upon which you find the white, sacred white lions of Timbavati in South Africa. Oh, wow. I just gave me a chill. How much area, yeah, how much area does this cover, a space? I mean, where all these stones are. I saw some of the photographs, and I'm wondering, you know, how, how, how big of the area yeah, this, this is this is really important for people to visualize. I must just distinguish between Adam's calendar and the stone circles. The the calendar is separate from the stone circles, uh, high up on a mountain on the edge of a cliff, looking down about three thousand feet into what's known as the Barberton Valley, and in that valley are some gold mines that are still being mined today. But I do believe that there are probably hundreds if not thousands of ancient gold mines that have been covered by by the sediment of the flood and uh, the flood evidence of that is the, is the uh, it can be seen in the 15 meter um, thick deposit of sea sand that we find in that Barberton Valley and uh, it's a very fertile valley as well um, but so Remember that Adam's calendar is, is separate from the stone circles. The closest stone circles to it are, are a few kilometers away. It was, a, it was for a completely different purpose, but connected mm. to the stone circles. 
Okay. So it played a, a, a function, but uh, it was connected, but it played a completely different function. What um, the stone circles cover most of large parts of South Africa. I would say probably between one third and half of South Africa will you find the stone circles on the landmass. And pretty much most of Zimbabwe, which is north of South Africa, uh, and uh, large parts of Botswana and some some areas of Mozambique. So it's it's a very large area. You know, it's it's uh, I would say it's yeah, it's it's a large area for anyone that looks at a map. You'll see. Um, um, well, so they, the local people, the knowledge keepers, I think they call them, the local people, the shamans, do they have a story about the circles? Oh, absolutely. Um, this is a phenomenal thing. You know, when I first started researching Adam's calendar and and finding just incredible, phenomenal things like, you know, the fact that you lose GPS when you walk into the circle of the of the calendar, and uh, you got to remember that there is no physical circle. It's just an imaginary circle. Uh, we can see from Google aerial shots that it was originally a circular structure. But um, when you're there on the ground, you can't really see the circular structure or any walls that that you find, like you find in the stone circles. The stone circles are clearly walls that make up a circle with no entrances, but but Adam's calendar, there's no no wall that you have to walk across, and yet there's a very defined circular um, effect that when you cross into it with your GPS, you instantly lose GPS signal. So that started making me wonder, how is that possible? You know, what's going on here? Why are we losing GPS signal? You step one meter forward and you lose GPS signal. You step a meter back and you get GPS signal. It doesn't make any sense. So it made it very clear that there were some very strange uh, uh, scientific and physical activities happening, energetic activities and energy fields that were active inside the, the calendar sort of circle or precinct. And uh, the ancient African knowledge keeper, especially, uh, I believe, um, the preeminent um, South African um, knowledge keeper being uh, Baba Credo Mutwa. And um, for many people will be familiar with him. If you don't know who Credo Mutwa is, I highly recommend you get a copy of his book that will blow your mind. It's called Indaba, My Children. And I think this is the book that really shook the world. Um, and... Credo tells me, he told me when I went to visit him after I started researching Adam's calendar, um, I went to visit him at his house um, and he lives very, very humbly and with his wife and uh, he's an old man now and he told me that he was initiated there in 1937 as a young shaman and that um, the African name for uh, Adam's calendar is actually Inzalo Yelanga or birthplace of the sun, where the gods created humanity, or as he called it, where heaven mated with Mother Earth. And so this goes back thousands and thousands of years. And uh, he also told me about the activity of the Anunnaki and, um, and how they are connected to the building of the site that was built by the Anunnaki entity or 
or the highest uh, commander of the Anunnaki in southern Africa in the gold mining fields by the name of Enki. And in African shamanic tradition, he is known as Enkai. Well, Paula, are you there? Yes. I don't know. Okay. Michael? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. okay. And we thought we lost I mean, you. That's happened we before. We have funny little noises, yeah. So uh, why do you think there's no doorways in these circles? Well, because they're not dwellings, you know. So, you know, imagine if you find a, a stone circle of something like medicine wheels, Native American medicine wheels. They have no entrances, right? And we we know that they're not dwellings because they're called medicine wheels. And the stone circles are not far removed, actually, from the Native American medicine wheels. And uh, they also, for the same reason, have no doors and entrances, because they're not dwellings. And uh, this took a long time to figure out, because it's so obvious that you sometimes you don't see the wood for the trees, right? So you look at the stuff over and over again, and you keep researching it and do measurements and so forth, and and only to realize that, hold on, the one common denominator in all these stone structures is that in their original form, they have no doors and entrances. Although many of them do have doors and entrances today, but those were alterations that were made more recently by people or tribes that have used these stone circles for their own benefit in more recent times. You know, if you were traveling through a, through a land and and with your small tribe or your family or and uh, and you came across a, a bunch of these stone circles, you would say, wow, this is fantastic. We'll use this, and you will adapt it for your own needs, and that's exactly what has happened. And unfortunately, this practice of adapting these stone circles has confused many historians, and they assume automatically that they must have been built by the people who left behind the pottery and all that, and, and that is not the case. They go back many, many thousands of years earlier and the reason that they weren't have no doors and entrances, for, as I mentioned, they're not dwellings, but they actually are part of a giant energy-generating grid um, that was used to generate energy and process the mining of gold and the gold ore that was taken out of the ground. So that's like free energy that yeah. is possible, possible for us to have. Absolutely, and and uh, you mentioned the word free energy, and um, you know if you mention the word free energy these days, you are very quickly sidelined. So let's make it very clear for everybody: we have free energy. We have more than ten million stone structures in South Africa and Zimbabwe, each one of which gives us free energy. I haven't measured all ten million, but we've measured enough to determine that they are all energy-generating devices. And they don't just give us some energy, they give us huge amounts of energy, energy that has never been measured on planet Earth before in terms of the sound frequencies that they generate in the gigahertz. Now, gigahertz of sound frequency is an incredibly high energy signal. If you know how to convert that into energy or electricity, you'll have an unlimited supply of electricity or energy. But we've got to first start looking at energy from a different perspective and stop using electricity as a form of energy 
but unfortunately electricity is what we've been sold because that you know that that serves the needs of those who want to control and measure the flow of energy so they use electricity so that they can measure it and they can they can package it nicely and charge us for it <laughs> it's exactly what nikola tesla didn't do right and that's why we don't use tesla energy today but these stone circles create so much energy uh, in sound frequency and gigahertz of sound frequencies that are then converted because of the mo circular movement of the of the sound frequency that comes out of the earth or the vibration or should I say the resonance of the sound that comes out of planet earth and that resonant effect of the sound gets converted into electromagnetic fields that we've measured coming out of these stone circles in incredibly large electromagnetic um, fields, very, very powerful. So maybe the size of the, the circle itself or, or um, you know, how, how it was constructed may be higher in the back than in front, so this creates a certain sound, a certain energy, do you think, or what are you contributing um, that you can visually see so that people can understand maybe how this is coming about. Yeah, the the circles are, every, every circle is unique. So they vary in size from small ones to a few meters across to very large ones. You know, from um, the largest one we have um, been working with to date is about 150 meters from the one end to the other um, with internal structures and and the internal structures are very similar to what you would find in cymatic patterns. When you put sand on a metal plate and you put a speaker under it and you, and you put sound frequencies through the speaker, through the metal plate, the sand on top of the metal plate starts to vibrate and move and create these beautiful circular patterns. And that's known as cymatics that Hans Jenny has shared with the world in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, and that's a phenomenal discovery about how sand, how sound manifests physical form in through sand or stone or physical material, and uh, and that's really that comes down to the whole creation process uh, in in the universe out of resonance and sound and 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 the creating of the morphogenic field, how it morphs into into physical form through sound and resonance. So this is really what the stone circles are. They they are representations of the sound and cymat the sound of Mother Earth as it comes out and and hits the surface. Um, the way they were constructed um, is most likely by some form of activation, um, by creating a, a circular um, standing wave of sound and energizing the space in inside the circle that will then draw out or respond to the sound frequencies that are naturally coming out of Gaia, Mother Earth, and um, and creating the cymatic pattern uh, into either sand or ash that is put inside the circle. So just like sand on a metal plate in a small experiment in the laboratory will do that, you're now doing it on a much larger scale, activating it with your own sound frequencies that you generate, like a speaker would generate the sound frequencies, but now you're generating your own sound frequencies um, in a circular, uh, in, in a circle, uh, with stones that have acoustic properties. 
So this is all a fascinating new understanding of how we can generate free energy by tapping into the sound frequencies of Mother Earth. I have a question. With Adam's calendar, do you, I, this is just a hit I got, they were using the calendar because at certain times of the year, the frequency would change as, as the year, ch- I mean, as the seasons change. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I've got a feeling it, it's, um, it's more than a feeling. I, I'm starting to understand why these ancient sites are aligned to the movements of the sun and the equinoxes and solstices and why at certain times it hits certain rocks or certain parts of the calendars or the tomb or whatever. Because remember, light con- conducts and, and contains information and also energy. So, and, and the stones that are used in these ancient megalithic sites are filled with the most advanced technological substance that we use in modern technology today, and that is silica. You know, we use silica in our silicon chips and in computer chips and, and, um, and laser beams and fiber optics. It's all silica. And, and yet all the rock in the world contains, most of the rock in the world contains between 50 and 99% silica. And, and quartz, which is quartz, right? So right. you realize that by, by understanding how to use silica and quartz in its natural environment in the rock, you don't need to extract it and create fancy, shiny, metallic objects that you can sell to people. That's all about, you know, that's because of the capitalistic, consumeristic society we've been trapped in. So what we're dealing with is people that don't need to sell anything to anyone and have an advanced knowledge of, of the laws of nature will use the laws of nature in its natural form. And rock is the natural form, so use the rock. So you can encode the silica in the rock with whatever you want to encode it with. It can hold memory. It can conduct information. It can store information. It can conduct energy and store energy. So you can also embed it with a certain clock or like a timing device that that will activate a certain aspect of the site, whether it's Stonehenge, whether it's Adam's calendar, whether it's any, whether it's the Great Pyramid. So as the sun hits it on the the winter solstice or the summer solstice or the equinoxes, those are like clocks. So it's like you, you've created like a timing device to make sure that this device that you've built gets activated by the rising sun or the light of the rising sun every six months or every three months to keep the clock going. And it, it's really when when these things start to fall into place and understanding how advanced technology is not in little silver and shiny metallic objects or, or computers, that it's actually in the nature around us, that it's deeply embedded in our bodies, that our bodies are, themselves are advanced technological devices uh, that are far more effective than anything we've ever created or built, um, you start to realize how completely unaware or ignorant we are of of, of what is going on around us and what technology really is. I'm just I'm just picturing all these uh, stone circles in Africa. It, it feels as though there's enough free energy in to give energy to all of Africa from the the circles that are already there. Well, there, there's probably enough energy to, to give energy to the whole world, uh, not just Africa. And I suspect that this technology is, was used all over the world, not just in South Africa, but in other parts of the world as well. And, and um, 
I suspect that Area 51 is utilizing this technology for whatever it is that they're doing there uh, that are found on Google Earth, uh, very suspicious structures that I believe are connected to similar stone circles. Um, the, the, unfortunately, the definition on Google Earth is not good enough over Area 51 to be absolutely sure. Um, but I, I found what I believe to be stone structures that are similar to the ones in South Africa, circular stone ruins that are well hidden beneath the soil, um, and that they re-engineered the technology and are using it in Area 51 because there are more than 200 very suspicious circular, modern-built circular devices that I don't know what they're using for, but I suspect could be connected to what we're talking about here. The, use, the generating of free energy and, and converting it to all kinds of other things. You know, it sounds like also that maybe the activation, I mean, the the pureness of, it's like a uh, what, you drop a pebble in water and all the rings go out. And, I mean, it eventually reaches every part of the world. And not only that, but if there's other areas that are activated by this as well, yeah. like you say, it's, it's a natural um, <laughs> uh, catch, catching, wow. What I can also tell you is that, that um, you know, some of the stone circles are very clearly built in the shape of, uh, well, with, with, the, with the understanding of what we today call modern technological devices, and today we give them names, and the one name specifically is a magnetron, and a magnetron is a is an electronic device that's used in generating huge amounts of energy. And, and it's interesting because it's called a resonant cavity magnetron, and it brings back to, comes back to resonance and sound. So with resonance and sound, modern technology, magnetrons, create huge amounts of energy that we find in microwaves and laser beams, and you know, laser beams that cut metal with their lasers in a split second. So you can imagine how much energy these magnetrons can create if they are giant 20-meter diameter magnetrons compared to a tiny one-inch magnetron uh, that can cut metal in a split second. So um, I've had several psychics uh, tell me that the magnetron devices that, that I've um, – or that, that are part of the giant energy grid uh, in South Africa – each one of those giant magnetrons is capable of generating more energy than the entire global supply today. Wow, that's mind-blowing. So does that reach, you're looking at maybe reaching other planets, if that's the case? Yeah, that's that's also very interesting. And but that that now now you're getting into um some more sinister activity that seems to be connected to this ancient um activity on planet Earth by the Anunnaki and possibly other beings as well, but uh, it it gets really interesting how we're getting to areas of new information all the time and that's what I guess makes this journey so exciting. Well, it's through the um that's how the pyramids were built through the vibrational frequency. I mean, that's that's what I was told anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, uh, my understanding at the moment is that it, they built with sound because sound sound levitates, you know. People yeah. don't know that. Most people don't know that sound levitates. Sound very clearly levitates things, and you can levitate anything with sound frequencies, anything. You can 
that's how the planets are kept in orbit through sound resonance everything is in harmonic resonant frequency and 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 in unity um resonates together in harmony and um so if sound is a source of all things that means that sound can be used for all things and that includes levitation for crushing things for drilling for um extracting and separating minerals and materials and this is why sound was used by these ancient civilizations who knew all this stuff for everything they did and but you know we onto it now we started to figure this out when i was in egypt at the museum in cairo i was staring at something trying to figure out what it was and our guide came over and he told me oh that's part of the um instrument that created the frequency that helped build the pyramids and he says but that's just my opinion so oh that's, that's, that's fascinating that. and you saw that in the Cairo museum uh-huh he said that's, it, that's... it wasn't whole it wasn't whole as it you know it was originally made but he goes that's part of the uh instrument that created the frequency can you describe what that what that um, uh, artifact looks like? It, it's like it's a flat. It's flat, and it's like almost like a uh, huge record, or and it had um, like lines in it, really fine lines. Okay. And circular, Paula. Was it a circular line yeah, or a straight it, line? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. No, the 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 lines that were engraved in it were, went around with it. It was like it's a okay. So it was like a, a like an old record, uh, gramophone record. Right. Wow. Okay. And did it have a hole in the middle? Right. Yes. It had a hole in the middle, so it was a round. Was uh, it a round flat stone? Yes. Okay. So yeah, I was I staring report. at it, trying to. Yeah. Pardon me. No, go ahead. I was, I was staring at it, trying to figure out what it was, and he came up behind me and told me the theory behind it. Now that's fascinating. So this is re- clearly somebody that that has a has has gone much further than what the the normal Egyptology um, storylines are, because they they're not supposed to tell you anything other than what they right. being told, right? Yeah. Well, he well we were on a spiritual, so he wasn't the normal guy to that we get from yeah. the government. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's excellent because I I recall actually seeing that device in the Cairo Museum. I need to go back and look at my photographs and and try and remember what my thoughts were on that. Um, I forgot about that. So thanks for reminding me. This is this is going to be a very critical little missing piece of the puzzle. And uh, and uh, it's it's little discussions like this. You see, that now that you told me and remind me of this, I think I'm, I have absolute very strong sense that it's gonna it's gonna fit in somewhere very very critically. Wow, I'm getting chills again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, because you see, what what happens is that, and this is what happens. You you talk about you talk to people all over the world, and they'll throw something out completely oblivious of how important that little piece of information is. Um, but you know, to somebody that has had experience or is in the field of research, it it may or may not mean something very very important. What I can tell you is, is that, for example, these the what I've discovered are these cone-shaped tools, which I now call the the ice cream cone phenomenon, 
and these cone-shaped tools that were used not only in southern Africa but were used in the United States in modern times by Ed Leeds Colnan and in Florida at Coral Castle. They were used in Egypt, cone-shaped tools as well to do with sound. They were used in North America, um, cone-shaped tools. And the reason I know this is because the African med- uh, the American medicine men, when they hold their sacred ceremonies in the kivas, use two cone-shaped tools to, and they hit them together to make a sound. Now, I'm not sure if the modern-day um, shaman or medicine men in North America know the reason why they do that. I'm sure that the, the genuine ones will know. But I think much of this, inf- much of this sort of um, um, activity has gone lost to many of the people that just perform the rituals without really understanding why they're doing it. But that all goes to sound, to generating sound frequencies and, and using the cone-shaped tools to focus the sound into what could be described as Sazer beam or Sazer technology as opposed to laser technology. And, and it's just everything comes back to sound. It's like the monks singing in the temples. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have this sound that goes out and resonates and puts the body into health and... Yeah, and uh, and keeps you strong. Well, yeah, the, pretty amazing. The Tibetan monks um, have been using um, those long, strange-looking trumpets of theirs and and horns uh, to levitate and move giant blocks around for a long time. So they've maintained this technique and the technology and the know-how for thousands of years. Uh, I think the, technolo- the te- technology they use today is probably not the most advanced or the most um, uh, useful way of doing things, but it still uses sound to move giant blocks around and manipulate it um, the way they want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, that the, the guys that, for example, built the pyramids, like you said, that that device was used to build the pyramid to put the stones in place, uh, we also need to keep in mind that with sound you can change the the vibration of the stones so that they become soft like plasticine or clay so that you can mold them into exactly the shape or 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 whatever you want so um it becomes very easy to get stones very close together or molded right into each other um, in ways that today just doesn't make any sense. And we see those kind of molded stones in spectacular fashion in some, some of the ancient ruins of Meso and South America. Wow, I got chills all over. <laughs> what's amazing to me is when you said it, I knew it was true, but I hadn't thought about it. The um, stones, we can engrave memory into the stones. So... The yeah. stones that are creating vibration can do it different ways at different times of the year, and that that was just amazing. Yeah, it's, mm. you know, it's just we're, we're we're just completely and utterly dumbed down. You know, we're like the lowest level consciousness that humanity has probably been in in hundreds of thousands of years, and yet we have this incredible potential to snap out of that virtually overnight and reach the highest potential of consciousness, and we are moving in that direction. And that's what makes this journey so exciting because we, so many people that are waking up and realizing and recognizing and this, this, 
this level of knowledge and tapping into the morphogenic field and downloading this information and just suddenly being enlightened, becoming enlightened very, very quickly. And and uh, and this is all predicted, wasn't it, that we are reaching the age of enlightenment? I think we're giving we're given the wild card, and we better yeah. use it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> no, because that's what Greg Braden said. You know, we're at at the point that we, you know, we can shift right now. So, absolutely, yeah. and and I think that you know what what you're doing with your show and what millions of people around the world are doing is is shifting this paradigm very quickly. But it's not always apparent to everyone, and especially. Well, many people that that would be that could be called and and are called light workers that are changing the paradigm, that are bringing in higher consciousness, sharing information. There's so many millions of light workers doing different things in different fields, and each and every one is equally valuable because they're all contributing very critical parts of the the puzzle and and creating a new unified paradigm and and a new growing unified consciousness on this planet that we need to nurture. And, and be very proud of. The problem is that because of the segregation and the separation and the the absolute draconian measures that the governments and the mainstream media have taken to keep us divided and keep us separated, many of these people and light workers that are doing this incredible work often don't know about each other. And even when they do find out about a about each other, they're still influenced by the residue of the separation that, that is enforced on us in our society. So many of us are still filled with with doubt and skepticism and and fear and and um and uh and we're just wary of other people and and we don't always open ourselves up to sharing things. So it's this this division that is used against us. So we must just be aware of this, that the people that are working in this field of of sharing enlightened information don't feel lonely, don't think you're alone out there. There are millions of people out there and realize that that you can very quickly and very easily connect to all those people and what they're doing because of what you're doing and the resonant field into which you have plugged into. You don't need so the internet. To, the yeah, internet's it's, really it's the cosmic. Connect. It's the it's the cosmic internet. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, now, would you I have please very, tell us? Go uh, ahead, I was going to say, I, I have a real practical question. Could um, the uh, the South African government? Uh, I mean, I, have you shared this with them so that maybe they could use this for free energy? I mean, for... <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I know. <laughs> South African government, just like the American government and every other government, is owned by the banking families. They're owned by the bankers, and uh, they're not going to do anything to to make it easy on the people. They will do everything to destroy this information, and they're trying their best to make sure that free energy doesn't reach anybody. It's the last thing on their mind. So we've got to go out there. We've got to bypass their draconian measures and their draconian attempts to to keep people, you know, enslaved and and find how to tap into this free energy and then share it with everybody instantly and as quickly as we can on the Internet using that that technology so that everybody knows how to do it for free. 
It's supposed to be free energy, not free yeah. from Mother Earth, and then we sell it to the world. That's no longer free energy. Free energy is if you discover something, you tell everybody in the world, wow, look, I discovered free energy, and this is it. It's free. Use it. So that Michael, we all we have access to it. We, we need you to tell us about your book, uh, Temples of the African Gods, and um, can you get that on your website or Amazon, and tell us a little bit about the book. Right. Well, I have three books, and a fourth one coming out very, very shortly. My first Ooh. book is um, Slave Species of God, which has recently been re-edited and re-released and upgraded. It's, it's called Slave Species of the Gods uh, from Bear & Co. Inner Traditions. Uh, they're all available on uh, Amazon and in various bookstores. And if they don't have it, please ask for it. They can order it and get it. Um, and then the second one was called Adam's Calendar, which is really the story of how Adam's Calendar was rediscovered in 2003. And uh, it's a lovely story and a very important story. Otherwise, we wouldn't be even having this discussion because I wouldn't have known all this stuff if it wasn't for Adam's Calendar being rediscovered. So, and then my third book was Temples of the African Gods, in which I put together the story of the, the stone circles and how many they are when I realized that there are more than 10 million of them. It suddenly puts a whole new spin on, on a truly wow. vanished civilization that we know nothing about, only to discover that the stone circles are actually energy devices and not dwellings that makes it even more mysterious. So it, in a way, uh, in many ways, uh, Temples of the African Gods is a physical... A proof and delivery of evidence for much of what Zachariah Sitchin had been writing about in, in many of his books, in all, well, all of his books, that there was a vast vanished um, gold mining um, operation at southern in the southern tip of Africa that was set up by the Anunnaki, and I now present the physical evidence that that's absolutely true and absolutely correct, but much larger than we ever could have imagined. And then my new book, which is about to come out, it's called Ubuntu Contributionism, uh, a, a blueprint for uh, for human prosperity. And that deals with what we learn from all this information. How do we take this knowledge of ancient times, hum humanity, the en enslavement of humanity, through these bloodlines uh, where we are today and how to remove ourselves from the slavery and, and uh, start bypassing the draconian measures and creating a beautiful world for the human race that is based on no money, removing money from the system, and operating on uh, communities that work together towards the, the greatest benefit of all the people in the community. And um, yeah, creating prosperity for all without any money, because the moment you remove money from the system, you've removed the hurdle to progress, and everything becomes absolutely possible and the, the flow of energy comes through without any hurdles, and it's a spectacular um, utopian vision that we are all entitled to. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Okay, your website is Michael. Yeah. MichaelTellinger.com. Okay. And um, is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you would like to share um, uh, you're also on tour. Yeah, well, I think that's probably the most important thing, you know. Uh, I'm on tour of the United States. I've already done, uh, I think, eight cities, eight or nine cities. I've just finished Contact in the Desert, um, which was spectacular. Joshua Tree was some of the biggest names in the business, uh, including Suzanne Taylor and her spectacular work on crop circles. And um, 
and uh, Graham Hancock and uh, oh my goodness, there were so many big names there. Um, and uh, now my tour continues. I'm in Los Angeles tomorrow night. That's Wednesday. Um, then we go to San Diego, Phoenix, Sedona, Taos, Boulder, Dallas, Austin, Chattanooga, and New York. So we still have 10 venues, 10 cities in the United States. But go to my website, michaeltellinger.com, and click on the banner, the USA banner, and that will open a page with the full schedule of the cities and the dates. Great. And where, uh, where are you going to be within the next few days? Well, as I said, tomorrow night, uh, Los Angeles. Um, okay. And uh, I, I can't remember what the venue is called now off, uh, off the top of my head in Los Angeles. Oh, it's called the Gateway, the Gateway in Los Angeles. Some people may be familiar with it. It's in West, uh, in, it's in West L.A. And, um, and then after that, Friday night, uh, I'm in San Diego. And then the next, on Sunday, I'm in uh, Phoenix, um, Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arizona. Well, have you seen any circles in the United States? Oh, yeah. There, there, there are plenty of circles in the United States. I found many. If you start looking on Google Earth, you'll see them everywhere. Um, I'm not sure what kind of circles they are, if they are also energy-generating devices. But I have a suspicion, I'm starting to believe that any kind of stone circle that you create uh, will automatically um, become an energy-generating device just by nature of the fact that the Earth rings like a bell, as Nikola Tesla told us. The Earth rings like a bell, and she volunteers free energy to us through the sound of Mother Earth, the sound that comes out of Earth. We don't have to burn oil, we don't have to burn water, which is sacred, we don't have to burn hydrogen or oxygen or anything. We don't have to destroy anything. We can just use the sound of Gaia for all our needs. And not only does she offer up her free energy to us, with that energy, with the sound of Gaia, we also enhance the growth of food. We do every possible imaginary thing. We can elevate. We can levitate things. We can mold rock. We can do all these things that we've discovered, all because we can tap into the free source of energy that Gaia is offering up to us every split second of every day. Now, I have a real quick question. Uh, in Egypt, they have obelisks. You know, the. Yeah. I think, yes. I Is that for sound also? Absolutely. Now, for people that come to my presentation, we'll get the whole new um, area of my research that includes Egypt, it includes all the other ancient sites in the world, how they are connected to the stone circles in South Africa, and what the main purpose was of all these ancient sites. And it is not what we've been taught. It is something so different, so sinister, and so mind-blowing. And it, it includes the obelisks in Egypt, because they also are sound energy-generating devices or conducting um, devices. They're like giant antennas. They, ri they ring like bells, like the stones in South Africa. that I say they ring like bells. Yeah. The giant yeah. obelisks in Egypt do exactly the same thing. And that's probably why the ancient Egyptians wore the uh, crowns with the point up. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I haven't yet figured out how that fits into it. But um, just about Maybe two months ago, uh, this is brand new research and brand new discoveries that I've made that connect all the ancient sites in the world. And I can't say all of them, but most of them. And I would probably say 
all of them eventually if we start looking, you know, analyzing them deeply enough. But they are all connected to and to the use of sound and uh, energy generation. But what and how it was created and how it was used and what these sites actually were is just mind-blowing. When people discover this, every time people come to my presentations now, it's like this huge, like, <laughs> this is aha moment for everyone. Oh, my goodness. How could we have missed this all these years? Is that what your newest book is about, how you're connecting all the, the um, places um, no, on the earth? The, the, no, no, the new book, the new book that I mentioned, Ubuntu Contributionism, that's about, uh, you know, um, Blueprint for Human Prosperity. That talks about contributionism, world without money. I connect the dots from ancient times to today and why we are so messed up, why the world is so messed up because of the total enslavement of the human race. The, my new book after that will be connecting all these dots and uh, and sharing this information. I'm, I'm probably going to start working on that uh, within the next two months and hope to get it out within the next um, six to eight months. Hmm. Well, you have your schedule cut out for you. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Well, you know, this is so important. I mean, uh, really bringing history to the forefront that people really need to know about and uh, we we are so thankful that you that you're on your path. <laughs> well, thank you, thank, for, thank you for, to people like you. Who... Our... I was just going to say everything is so underneath our nose that we can't even see it, <laughs> and yeah, you're bringing it forward. We thank you for all the work you're doing, and thank you for being with us today. It's just mind blowing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, um, and uh, and. Thanks for inviting me on your show, and and hopefully I will I'll see you at one of my presentations in the USA. Hopefully, if I'd known about Los Angeles a little bit sooner, I would have been there. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> well, keep us informed about your new upcoming books, and we'll keep you on our on our radio, uh, telling Thank us you. more and more. Yeah. We would love Thanks. to have you back. Thanks, Taz and Paula. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. Thank you, Michael. You You too. Have a great tour. Bye now. Bye-bye.